Now, for those of you who've been following along in the um, devotional, you are going to recognize that I have veered a little bit in looking at Job 28. Um, you were probably expecting a little bit more. Uh, for those of you who were excited to hear about Elihu, Zach Schaefer, uh, I'm going to actually not do that um, because, and I'll, I'll mention some to it, um, but uh, we're going to actually do Job's last statement next week. But the more that I went along and the more that I, and I wrestled with this from the beginning, is what to do with chapter 28. Now, there's a reason for that because um, nobody agrees on who wrote it. Nobody knows if Job wrote it. Some seem to think it may have been Zophar's last argument, which doesn't make sense. The tone is all wrong. Some take more of a literary approach and kind of view this whole thing in, in, in the way that you would view maybe a play and say that the narrator is just kind of stepping in for an intermission to let us come up for air before finishing the play, as it were. Now, so where I stand on that, I don't think it's necessarily Job talking just yet. It doesn't have the right tone. And we're going to see in chapter 29, it says, and Job picks up his discourse. So there seems to be, you know, there seems to be something different in this. And so I don't think it's Zophar either because it's way too smart. Um, and it's actually biblically correct what we're going to read this morning. And I do think that it is a, a way of kind of putting to rest the, um, the discourses from the friends. And then the second half or the latter portion of Job is about the last words. Job's last word, Elihu, who represents the last opportunity for man to speak anything close to wisdom. And if you read it, he really doesn't. He just rehashes everybody else's argument and makes some bold claims and doesn't quite make it happen. And then last but certainly never least is God speaking and having essentially the last word. And so I think this is a transition piece. It's beautiful. It's, uh, everybody does agree that it's beautifully constructed. It's very different than other aspects of Job, which lead many to think it doesn't even belong in the book, that somebody stuck it in there at some other point in time. I don't think that this is true, by the way, but they think they stuck it in there at some other point in time because they just thought, people just need a break. I've been reading this for a while. We're going to have to stick something good in there, tell some jokes for a while or something. And so this psalm kind of just shows up. But, well, I think, I think it's the Holy Spirit put it there, and I think it is incumbent upon us to take time to walk through it and to learn from it and to recognize what it is telling us about Job himself. So with that being said and all that preamble, let me just catch us up to where we are. So um, Job has been wrestling, and as we have seen, his argument has progressed, and we're going to see even more in his final statement that Job is actually growing in some measure in faith. And he is recognizing more and more and more the sovereignty of God and more and more that the only person who can redeem him, the only person who could stand atop the trash heap with him before he dies to declare him righteous is God alone. Amen. And so he is growing in that, but he's still wrestling and he still doesn't have all of everything figured out. Do you? Well, that's honest now, isn't it? And his friends have all said all that they can say. In fact, Zophar didn't even get a third argument. He just ends on two because he's, he's shot all that he could think of. And remember, his argument was, I know that you can't know God, and I know that. Interesting. 
and Eliphaz and everybody else, their arguments don't progress. They just grow more shrill. And so there's really not a whole lot to, for them to offer us anymore. And so we come to this point where Job has declared that if God doesn't redeem him, there is no redemption for him. So keep that in mind as we read this psalm. And it is a psalm, uh, the way it's constructed and the beauty of its poetry, which we miss to some extent in the English, but I'm not going to read it to you in Hebrew. I don't even know if we could appreciate Hebrew poetry. It doesn't rhyme like our poetry does. It's, not, it's very complex. And so, um, so as, we, as we enter into this, let's keep in view how this is biblical theology. This is all over Scripture. And so let me read Proverbs 1, 1 through 7 for you just to, just to give you an idea of where this is located. It says, To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, one of the things that's interesting about Job's friends is, are they open to being instructed? No, their theology's all worked out they got it figured out, and it's mechanistic. It's simple math, if you remember. It's the retribution principle. And so what they're saying is, nothing for you to say to us, Job. It's for us to teach you. You are the one who forgot that it works simply like this. You mess up, you suffer, you do good, you're blessed. Simple as that. No righteous people suffer. Is that true? Do only the evil suffer? Is Psalm 73 in your Bible? Is Gethsemane in your Bible? Is the cross in your Bible? So the righteous do, in fact, suffer, don't they? And there is reason for that that is to the glory of God that is beyond at times our comprehension, but in faith we must cling, amen? And so here uh, his friends have simplified it. In fact, this is where the law and wisdom seem to kind of collide. Some of you really struggle with this because you're very black and white. But there is all kind of gray in certain circumstances and situations. Like Paul says, and this messes us up, by the way, those who are black and white, which I, I am not, as it turns out. Um, I tend to probably be much too gray because of my postmodern background. So I admit my weakness, and I need sometimes my wife, who is much more black and white, to say, that's insanity. Uh, <laughs> that's why God put us together, because there's times she needs to hear, no, your law is insanity. And so, so that's, that helps to balance us out. We're not at war. We make each other better, as it turns out, because of that. But Paul says these terrifying words. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are good. What does that mean? What do you do with that? Now, you teenagers, don't go quoting that to your parents. I want to hear, I want to hear back that you are blurring the lines and quoting me on that or quoting Paul. But wisdom is what helps us to understand how to live in a world in which law is not the only 
rule. It's not all mechanistic. It's not all black and white. Because if all we did was keep the law, and I say, hey, I I didn't kill you. Does that mean that I helped you to flourish? Does that mean that I helped you to be all that you could be in God's glory? No, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, I can, with the law, I can ignore my neighbors, as it turns out, for the most part. It's all kind of mechanistic if we're not careful. So the beauty of wisdom is that it teaches us how to live in the totality of the space. Does that mean that wisdom trumps law? No, it doesn't. They work together just like those of us who are much more gray and those of us who are much more black and white need each other to balance to some extent. And so the wisdom helps to balance the law and to keep it from being a guillotine and becoming retribution principle only. Let me ask you, who's the wisest person that you've ever known? Think about that for a second. Who would you say, of all the people you know, that's, they are the wisest person I've ever known? Now, what I want you to do is think about your criteria. How did you, why, why do you think they're wise? Was it because they were wealthy? Because being wealthy does not necessarily mean that you are wise. I know a bunch of people who are filthy, stinking rich, and they are the most unwise people I've ever met in my life. In fact, I worked for a group of very, very rich people who lived paycheck to paycheck, which I don't think is very wise, by the way. But they just thought, man, there's so much money coming in, it's going to just keep rolling in forever. Is that what happened when the market crashed? Did the money just roll in forever? No. Be careful that you're not judging wisdom based on material or external things. What's the criteria? What should be the criteria for you determining whether or not someone is in fact wise? Who ought the wisest person be? What also ought to be true of them? They should be the person that you know fears the Lord the most. That is in fact the wisest person that you know. The one who has the greatest faith in the sovereign Lord, who hates evil as God hates evil, who is obedient even if it means they live in a mud hut, even if it means they have next to nothing from your eyes. So remember, we have a very distorted view of what wisdom is if we're not careful, and we have a very distorted view of what is evidence of wisdom if we're not careful. So as we step into this, we wanna keep those tensions in mind. So if you would join me in reading the text, let's look at verses one through 12. Hear God's word again this morning. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. The path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. 
He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden, he brings it out to light. But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Now the psalmist here is saying that man has this incredible ingenuity and ability to have dominion over all of creation and to do with creation primarily whatever he wills. He can take whatever is in the deepest darkness and bring it forth into the light. He is unique in all of creation as an image bearer having this dominion. No other animal can do what man does. I mean... Do platypuses do these kinds of things? Do cheetahs, even though they outrun us? Despite all of the things that they can do that we can't do, there's things that they absolutely cannot do. They cannot take and bend creation to their will. As image bearers, as ones who are unique in all of creation, remember Psalmate, you've crowned us with honor and glory. And yet, there's a problem. Despite all that man can do, despite all that he can unearth, despite all that he can find, there's one thing that is utterly beyond his grasp, beyond his ingenuity, beyond his craftiness. What is it? Wisdom. Wisdom is utterly dark to him. He cannot understand or know the ways of God no matter what he does in and of himself. Despite all the philosophy, despite all of the things that have been written, despite all of the psychology, despite all of the science, which I am not against, by the way, but despite all of these things, man cannot answer certain questions no matter how hard he tries. That's what the psalmist is saying. And let me ask you, is that still true? Okay. All right. Well, if it is, tell me this. I don't care how many steps it takes. Tell me how to fall in love. Tell me how you can put me in a room, you, you pick, put me in a room with another human being and make me love them. How do you do that? Show me the way. Surely you know. Surely you have unearthed it, right? You figured it out. It's easy, isn't it? For those of you who have figured out how to love someone else, it's, it's, it's just one, two, three, right? Where is your book? Because I'd like to read it. All you got to do is figure out the love languages, right? And that's just, that's all you got to do. Gifts of service, acts of kindness. I don't know, what, what are they? <laughs> Clearly, I don't know. <laughs> but his point is very, very salient. Despite all that man can do, what he cannot do is fine wisdom. Now, why in the world would this show up in Job at this point? Why? Why in the world would, would the Holy Spirit cause someone to pen this psalm here? What have they been doing? They have put their hand to the flinty rock of philosophy and religion, and they have come up with their own theology that's workable within their sphere and framework, his friends have. They have brought into the light what they feel like is the deepest of wisdoms. Think Eliphaz, who said, I had a religious experience in darkness. In fact, 
I didn't even really see it all, but what I did see you should listen to, it's authoritative. So he, from the darkness of spirituality, pulled forward his wisdom. And then you had, you had Bildad who said, no, 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 it's, a, it's tradition. Let's reach into the traditions of men back into the past and let's bring that forward. They must have been right. And then Zophar said, to heck with all that stuff. Let me just tell you what I know. And he reached deep within himself and unearthed his inability to know God, which seems odd as something you would find. And so the psalmist here is pushing back against and saying, all that they have done for 27 chapters is nonsense. You can have conversation after conversation and you will never get to the end of it in and of yourselves. How many people have said, God must prove himself to me? I did. I did. And he did. But not in the way that I asked, as it turned out. And it almost cost me dearly. And you too. And so the Lord is, is not someone that we are to um, put on display and say, uh, we know you first. We must know you first before you can know us, the one who created you. Where did you come from? Think of the insanity of it, that the finite would say to the infinite of any kind, you owe us an explanation. And so the psalmist is saying, dig and dig and dig, talk and talk and talk, read and read and read, listen to podcast after podcast after podcast, and you will not find what you need apart from one thing, but we're not there yet. And so, listen to what Francis Anderson says. He says, man's remarkable success as a miner shows how clever and intelligent he is, but for all that, he has failed completely, completely to unearth wisdom. What are some ways in which humanity has progressed over the last hundred years? Name them. What are they? Surely we have. Twitter, did you say? I know, I'm just messing with you. Meta, yes, medicine, like Bill Tippins would say Twitter. Twitter, yik yak. Um, yes, medicine. We've made incredible advances in medicine, haven't we? And yet, are we more alive? Is the quality of life somehow better for the most part? Are we less neurotic? What, what else? What other advances do we have? Uh, certainly technological. Certainly the iPhone has changed us for the better, hasn't it? We're more connected now than we've ever been. Look at us relate. Are we better? People don't even know how to have a conversation anymore. We don't know how to get into the things that would actually lead us to wisdom, to fear the Lord, because we don't talk about those things. No, we blog about them. You want to talk to me about it? Then reply so I can hide you because I didn't like what you said or bully you on some other media. For all the advances that we've had in the last hundred years, interestingly, and this is secular understanding, the evidence shows we are in essence, as humans, as people who should love and have joy and be at peace, we are somehow worse off. 
And it is utterly confounding and confusing to us. We have mined the depths of knowledge. We know more now than we've ever known in history. And yet, somehow, some way, for all of that, our children are somehow less interested in all that. They would rather choose death than life. They would rather go their own way and carve out their own channel in the flinty rock because they think we're just old fools. Okay. So the point is that for all that we're able to do, we've not been able to do the thing that we have so greatly desired, which is have more joy, be more at peace. How many of you and I'm not asking for your view on this, but how many of you are looking to the coming election as finally, finally we're going to get to where we, it's going to, the whole country's fixing to get better for the next four years. No matter what the choice is. As you look around the world as Russia, Mother Russia is raising the bear and imposing her will in various places, how many of you feel like, yeah, I think, I, I think old Putin's going to make the world a better place. He's not crazy at all. He was KGB, by the way. He was a good guy. How many of you, as you look at the Middle East and what's going on there, you're comforted? Or what's going on in our own country in any variety of ways? As we've had this conversation that somehow seems to me to be utter insanity to say of our own children that they're not people in the womb. That though they can feel... Though they can take in information, though we know scientifically that they can do in the womb much of what can be done outside the womb that makes a person a person, they're not a person. Have we lost our minds? For all the advances, that's the conclusion we've come to, is somehow we are less human. But this was written so long ago. How did he know? How did God know this is what we would become? He's speaking to us, isn't he? We're not wiser. We're not more just than we've ever been in history. We're not. Not as a people, not as a nation, not as the world. And so, what hope do we have but to turn back to the text? Let's read verses 13 through 20. Man does not know its worth, meaning wisdom, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me, and the sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of the coral of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then? Does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? So the psalmist is moving from, well, if you can't find it for yourself, you also can't buy it even if you wanted it. It is a priceless thing. What, what else has been deemed a priceless thing in Scripture? 
If you found the pearl of great price, what would you do for it, much less the kingdom of God itself? This priceless thing, what would you give up for the kingdom of God? What would you give up for wisdom to have it? See, it's, it's priceless. It's not, it's not even something that you can control or buy. It's not something that you can manipulate. It really isn't. And so he makes it clear that in the whole of the created order, in all of the land of the living, you will not find it in other created things. He also says that even the place where you think you might find it, which is in the deep and in the darkness, even they say it doesn't rest with us either. So the psalmist is making the point very, very strongly that wisdom cannot be found in any of the places that we could go. Wisdom cannot be found in any of the places that we could look. Listen to what John Walton, Old Testament scholar, says. He says, wisdom cannot be found and cannot be purchased. It is inaccessible from a human vantage point and beyond value. The acquisition of wisdom is a human desire that is not attainable by human effort. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. So what is the correlation between wealth and wisdom? Does wealth make you wise? Who knows who Howard Hughes is? How wise was he? How many, I'm I'm, I'm gonna lean in. Donald Trump, how wise is this man? I don't care if you think it'll be fun to have him in office just to shake things up and to tick Russia off and start World War III. That's fine if that's what you want, but let's, talk, let's, let's just, come on now. This dude is rich as all get out, and, his, and he talks about the way people look as the mean. Bill Clinton, who's rich as all get out, he leaned into us, and he said, so tell me, country, what is the definition of is? And we said, oh, he's, so, he's a Rhodes Scholar. That must be smart. So I, I hit both sides, so don't, I don't hear anything. So wealth cannot be assumed on wisdom. Now, does wisdom at times lead us to have great resources? That's what the Bible says. It says it can, for sure, that honor and glory, that everything that you could possibly need comes through wisdom. Think about Solomon. When he prayed to the Lord, what did he pray for? Money. He said, give me money, because I can rule the world with money. And what he said? You guys must read your Bibles or something. No, what he said was, give me wisdom. And the Lord said, because you have asked for the thing that you've needed the most, I will give you everything else. Everything will be added unto you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And what will be added to you? Everything else. Everything you could possibly need. All that you need to be able to flourish in this world. And so what assumptions do we make in terms of wisdom about those who are poor and about those who are wealthy. Some of the poorest people I've ever met are some of the wisest because of their fear of the Lord and their faith in God. Do not equate wealth and poverty with wisdom and ignorance. Don't you do it. You will rob yourself pretty significantly. Let's turn back to the text and see what the answer to the question is. Verse 21, it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air, Abaddon, which is destruction, and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it. 
And he knows its place, for he looks on the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and a portion to the waters its measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning and the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So what's the answer? Where in the world can wisdom be found? Nowhere in the world. Only in the fear of the Lord can one become wise. Now there's 18 men in here who know the answers to these questions, what I'm about to ask. So what does it mean? We, we can't do what we don't know what it is, right? It's one thing to say, fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. Does that just mean be scared of him? Does that mean run whenever the preacher talks as the oracle of God? Does that mean avoid your Bible? Because you could find something out that you're currently doing that you shouldn't be doing, and that would be horrible to have to change your life for your betterment. Is that what it means to fear the Lord? To run when the thunder cracks and the lightning is in the sky? No, what does it mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, let me tell you. It means to have a reverence and an awe of him because he is sovereign. His sovereignty encapsulates all of his attributes, if you think about it, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his, all that he is for, for us to say that he is sovereign, for him to declare himself sovereign means he is all those things. So we ought to be in awe of the creator who controls all things. If you are not in awe of the creator, there's no way for you to fear him. It also means that you are willing to submit in obedience to his commands because it is his commands that lead to life and life more abundant in union with Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are unwilling to submit to what God says, God calls us to be and do, then there's no way for you to fear him. Now you may be thinking, well, does that mean I gotta memorize Leviticus? Well, let me help you out. I'll shorten it real quick. Well, Jesus helped us out, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, how do you do that? Well, that's where wisdom comes in. That's where the law also helps to balance us out, doesn't it? Too many of us are never asking either one of those questions. And the third thing is a genuine hatred for evil. Now, what is evil? Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Tea Partiers, Putin, Assad, ISIS. No, evil is anything and everything that separates us from God. And if that doesn't bother you, then it's not ISIS you need to worry about. It's not this government you need to be concerned about. It's your soul. If it doesn't bother you that there are things that could carry you away from God and separate you from him and diminish his glory, then there's no way you can ever, ever be wise. Good luck in this world. And that is where we are probably the most lax of all, myself included. Myself maybe more than any of you. And I'm grieved grieved by my own lack of fear of the Lord 
as evidenced in some of these things. But if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that's what fear is, to reverently have awe of his sovereignty, to submit ourselves to his commands, which, by the way, lead to life more abundant, not to uh, uh, just a, a boring, lame life, which so many of us think obedience is. That's insanity. We've sold you a bad bill of goods if that's what you think Christianity is, is that it's the least interesting way to live in this world. Forgive us. We also must have a hatred for evil. If all that's it, then you can obtain wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Well, in short, it's the ability to glorify God in all of life. Every single solitary phase of life. That means in your marriage, that means as parents, that means as children. Wisdom is available to you too, by the way. You can be wiser than you currently are. Trust me. And it means in your job, that means in your worship, that means in your sexuality. How many of you ever think about wisdom and sexuality and sexual practice? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are wise. See, we are leaving gaping holes in our lives because we're not applying wisdom because we don't even fear the Lord. Because we have everything turned upside down. We talked about this this weekend with the men. One of the things we talked about is what, what in your schedule, I, all I, I, there's two things that I can look at and I can know whether or not you're wise. And this comes from Proverbs, by the way, and you're not gonna let me do it, but that's okay. I don't need to, I'm not the Holy Spirit. But give me your checkbook and let me look at your calendar in real life. And I will know everything I need to know about whether or not you are wise. How you use your resources and how you use your time tells us everything. For most of us, what gets cut always when things get hectic? What? Devotion and worship. Always. Many of you, many of us, now I don't get the liberty to do this. I'd love to do this one time just to make a point to you guys, just not show up one Sunday because I had something else going on. But I don't get that liberty, now do I? Because I'm paid. No, I do this because I love it. And you ought to too. And because we don't, this is what we have, this stillborn, stilted Christianity that we are teaching to our children. Now I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, right? At least today. Now am I just being hard on you because I... I'm trying to save my job up here. No. No. No, I want you to be more alive. And if what we cut always is the thing that actually teaches us about who God is and who we are in reference to him, like I've said many times before, we have no idea how it's setting us up for failure a year or two or three from now when we have nothing to give when a storm blows in except to question God. And God instead pushes back and says, where have you been? I've been here the whole time. Where have you been? You want to show up now seeking wisdom when I had it laid out for you day after day after day and you said, I don't want it. I got better things to do. Woe be unto us. See, this psalm is reading our mail. Praise God, it's where it is. Praise God we didn't skip it. 
Praise God he loves us enough to tell us the truth. No matter how hard you try, no matter the way that you go, no matter how much money you have, you are not wise unless you fear the Lord. If you don't regularly fear the Lord and evidence that on a regular basis, because you think you're gonna catch up in the curve, that curve may never come. And you may not be what you think you are. Who am I to say that? It's what the scripture says. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear of the Lord, trembling at evil. Is that what we're doing? Or are we just trucking along? So Job, interestingly enough, was described in Job 1 as a man who fears the Lord. And the beauty is, I think he does. I think he does all these things. In fact, if we were to flip back to 27, listen to what he says. We didn't read this before, but just hear his words. He says, as God lives, who has taken away my right and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you, my friends, are right till I die. I will not put away my integrity from me. I will hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Now, he's just an arrogant punk, isn't he? No, he's making a declaration that I have hated evil and I will not back off of that. I also recognize that God is sovereign even over this and I am in awe of that and I will not back off of that and I will continue to obey God's commands even if it feels like death to me. Job is going to gain wisdom because of his fear for the Lord. This psalm sets us up beautifully for God to come and encounter and speak directly to Job. Because now Job's ready to receive. He has evidenced a fear that does not waver because of suffering. Job has not moved off of what he knows is ultimately right. Even though he has struggled, he has stayed on what he thought was an ash heap, but was more of a foundation. Is that us? Listen to what John Hartley says. He says, wisdom resides with God alone. It permeates all his creative work. In mankind, it finds expression in his amazing technical genius, but human ingenuity cannot find wisdom, nor can all the wealth that man can wrestle from the earth to purchase it. Wisdom for mankind can only be discovered in a devout relationship with God. This, him, prepares Job for Yahweh's appearing. So let me ask you, how have you grown in wisdom from your relationship with God? See, we're so tangled up in, in trying to not sound arrogant and to this, this idiotic faux humility that we're, we're afraid to declare that we know anything. We're afraid to actually say, no, this is where God has been good and I have been blessed because we're afraid we'll sound terribly charismatic. We would much rather appear stoic and, and, and angry about everything. And you may say, well, Cameron, you kind of look a little angry about a bunch of stuff right now. But I, I want you to hear. I want you to be set free in your fear of the Lord so that you could gain wisdom. And so, how have you grown? And if you haven't, then you ought to work out your salvation with fear and trembling today, not tomorrow. It should move you to act today. So what do we learn from Job 28? 
Our greatest effort and ingenuity cannot unearth wisdom. Our incalculable wealth cannot purchase wisdom. Only our fear of the Lord and obedience to his commands can lead to wisdom. Derek Thomas says this, reverence to God is the primary quality that makes us wise. Not till we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's essential holiness and majesty, willing to have our own ways and will turned upside down, can we truly become wise. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are honest with us. Thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth. Thank you that you loved Job and his friends enough to expose to them the ways in which they had failed to fear you. Thank you for declaring that Job did in fact fear you even in the midst of his great questions. Thank you, God, that you give us the room to wrestle and question and love and, and fear and, and struggle. Thank you that there is meaning in every aspect of our lives. Thank you that you show us the way to life and life more abundant as available only in and through the person work of Christ. May we have the, the faith and the courage to cling to the crucified, the risen one, the ascended one, the one who sits and makes intercession for us, the one who's coming again. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that leads and guides and aids us in this wisdom so that we would not live in folly and death. God, if I have one request, it's to help us to be more alive in Christ. Amen.